You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has Micha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kowalkowski. Uh, Yitzchak, we've talked a lot about um, the connections that uh, uh, the United States wanted to make with its allies during World War II. And I remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, we spoke about how, you know, um, films that were made here in the good old USA uh, with a number of English uh, expatriates or English people who had escaped uh, what was happening, the Blitz and other terrors that were happening. Um, Many back lots were used to represent England and and London and all the, the beauty of England. And it was England was extolled and the relationship uh, was pushed as a very positive one, and that as much as George Bernard Shaw uh, was was uh, used to always say that America and England are two countries separated by a common language, um, emphasizing not only did we speak differently, but our attitudes were different. Um, there was a sense of there was an upper crustness. There was a a, a sense of uh, looking at us as if we were somehow less than uh, what our language demanded us to be. And we, of course, looked at the English as being stuffy and old-fashioned and part of a world that was basically over. Uh, world War II patched things up. But I think as soon as World War II ended, uh, the seams began to unravel. And what we have in uh, a number of films that were made, uh, the J. Rank Company and others that were made in the late 40s and 50s, um, really indicate uh, a style of its own. And of course, you know, we're mostly Hollywood people, you and I. Most of the movies we've seen and most of what we, the images that we have were produced out in California primarily. Um, But we know that England, you know, sort of took a little bit of a, a page of its own and started to develop a grittier, you know, perhaps even a truer type of filmmaking. Uh, it had its own British type of noir in the 50s and even especially going into the early 60s. Um, England was a was a country that um, was still in shock, not only over, you know, Yitzhak, the, um, the fact that they had lost so much uh, and during World War II, and, and, and uh, as we say, the the Kerper, you know, the, the people who had died, but also the prestige of England. Uh, it was clear that the dominating force was the United States, and the ruins all across England were was evidence to it. But it was also true in in, in the financial markets uh, and in industry. It was a glorious period for the U.S. And, and and then the world, uh, you know, the the empire, the British Empire around the world, pretty much fell apart in the years after the war. You know, they lost India, they lost they lost most of Africa, they lost you know they lost all of their territories they had all over. And 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 there was almost a, a recoiling against what had been, you know, colonialism um, and the grand empire. I mean, there was a, a, a there was sort of a. I think well, even they had, the, they had to pay for they had to pay for the the, the war. You know that was that's true. The war expenses were were a big part of that. And, and I think what occurred in, in 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 as far as the U.S. went was even though we sort of knew England was finished, there became I think remnants of this Anglophilia, like like being involved with the royals 
we know that, you know, Queen Elizabeth, who was so young and striking, I mean, she wasn't like a lady die, a fashion diva, but we know that it was a very big thing, you know, in the 50s, you know, about Queen Elizabeth. And, and as, as, as inconsequential as what England was doing on the foreign stage in terms of not really being able to wage war, some of the other parts of England, like the, you know, the, the parts that were really just ceremonial, sort of, you know, took hold in the minds of, of Americans as something significant. And we still have that. I mean, I, right, there's still this, like, was it Meghan Markle, right? You know, everybody, you know, they, they care about, you know, who Harry's married to, or the other one is married to, or Andrew is married to. So, you know, I think that, that you know, this is a dynamic, which, which is very interesting. I think it, it showed itself, I think, in a number of films, uh, where post-World War II, you know, we have films that, uh, sort of, you know, the party's over. <laughs> and the films really highlight the fact that England is not America and things are, are, are really different there. And uh, I, I want to start really with a film that that um, is available, uh, I believe, you know, in the, I don't know if it's in the public domain or not, but it's available on Tubi. Um, you can also catch it on in the Criterion channel. And that is a film that in England was known as obsession and for some reason they gave it a very in my mind a um, sort of a uh, a blase term uh, um, called the hidden room and uh, it has uh, it really is a, a a great psychological I wouldn't know if I would call it a thriller necessarily but it's really a great psychological uh, piece of, of crime and uh, it, it was written by uh, someone who 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 I, I didn't find out much about him uh, when I even you know my searches came up empty. I guess I should have gone to Google Scholar, but uh, Alec Kappel or Capel uh, wrote a, a play um, and then a, a novelization based on the play, and then he wrote this screenplay, and was based on his uh, book uh, and, and 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 play that was called uh, A Man About a Dog. And I think you told me right before we started recording that that was a, what did you say that's usually a term for? A man about a dog? It's like a slang term in England. Like, you know, I'm going to go see a man about a dog means oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom or or something along those lines. I'm going to go, you know. Mm, I see. In other words. Something they don't want to mention, you know. Right. They don't want to say what they're doing. So it's almost like I'm a man about a dog. Um, and, and it was like in, in America, they say, I'm going to see a man about a horse, but it, that meant something else. But mm -hmm. um, So a man about a dog was 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 a I guess it was somewhat successful. I couldn't really find out whether it packed the theaters or not, but it really is sort of similar, uh, you know, I guess a drawing room. Um, you know, battle of wits, so to speak. And, and really what was happening there is between um, a character uh, uh, who is a psychiatrist uh, played by Robert Newton, uh, who was very, you know, I think he was very prominent in, in the late 40s and 50s, uh, a great English character actor. Uh, this is really, I guess, one of his great starring roles. Um, uh, many people remember him as Bill Sykes in uh, David Lean's version of Oliver Twist. He also was the Long John Silver. Uh, Robert Newton uh, plays uh, Dr. Clive Reardon, um, and you know, sort of an upper crust English fellow. And 
uh, who's part of a, a club where most of the, uh, uh, the, the denizens of that club are complaining about what's happening. And you can really get a sense of 1949 when this film was made that they were complaining about the Americanization of the world and how everything was dollars and how the shortages that were occurring there. Um, and of course, he has his mind on something else. He's married to a woman, uh, clearly his junior, uh, a luscious a femme fatale type um, played by Sally Gray, whose uh, you know couple gave her the name uh, Storm Storm Reardon, um, and uh, I don't know if that was a common name at all, but it definitely is uh, indicative Yitzchak of the type of relationship that they have. Uh, she clearly is just looks for other men. Uh, she's living comfortably. Uh, it's it's funny again the home that they live in. Are is 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 clearly upper. Uh, it's upper crust. It's clearly what we would call uh, people who are in um, on a high economic setting. But you can see some things are a little bit crumbling. For some reason, um, the uh, couple and, and and the director Edward Dimitrik, who we'll talk about a little bit more, uh, decide that the that the uh, man of the house, the butler, has a hearing aid and can't hear well. Like he's somebody that's left over from better times and just couldn't, you know, wasn't able to get a job. Um, and it's clear that uh, she is, Storm has been cheating on uh, Clive consistently. And her latest conquest uh, is an American um, uh, who was played by, uh, again, I don't know much about this fellow's history, Bill, Phil Brown. Uh, people's, people remember him because he was, he was, in, he was Luke Skywalker's uncle. Uh, which I guess makes him you know, somehow a relative of Obi-Wan Kenobi in some way. I think that's everybody remembers him. But, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, a, a, a television, I'm sure he, uh, you know, if, uh, this might have been one of his uh, primary films, um, Phil Brown. Uh, Phil Brown plays this American fellow who is not, not particularly handsome or dashing. And it's clear he's perhaps just someone who's attracted to, uh, the storm's beauty and their dalliance is obviously more than just, um, uh, you know, taking her out for dancing, um, as it's shown in the, in the first couple of minutes. Clearly, you know, she's having a torrid affair with him, and this is not the first. Um, he, he describes in the film, and it's very interesting again, you know, it's a very literate film, and he speaks about uh, the, the embarrassment the, uh, that he felt. Uh, throughout all of these affairs where uh, he's supposed to look the other way and he knew from the moment anything occurred what she was doing. Uh, Reardon is a genius. Uh, he's able to read people. He's a psychiatrist and he understands their motivations and he knows that she's been doing this, but he can't bring himself to kill her. What he's going to do instead is um, kill the last one, this fellow this Phil, this uh, Bill Cronin, played by Phil Brown. And what he does is he takes him, um, and this is why the, the, the film was called The Hidden Room, he takes him into a, a room that's somewhere near, you know, the bombed out area of the garage where he keeps his car, which is somewhere near his office. Um, and that's where he has him locked up in chains. Um, and the idea of why it's the perfect murder, and this gets into like a lot of these English 
uh, 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 stories uh, where, you know, Agatha Christie and others, where they're trying to think of the perfect murder, the perfect murder, I can, I'm going to get away with it. You know, the perfect murder, although it is a crime of passion, he's dispassionate and he's just going to wait. He's going to keep him alive for months. Uh, and then after it's been assumed that the fellow has somehow disappeared and been who knows what has happened to him, then he's going to kill him and dispose of his body. And um, the, the film uh, indicates uh, in many scenes, uh, and actually there are, there are a number of places where uh, this Clive Reardon is uh, puttering around in a laboratory of sorts where he is clearly has invented a type of acid, which he describes later, will, uh, which will uh, you know, shear all the bones and flesh off of his body without uh, burning a hole into the, in, into the floor, into the bathtub where he's going to sick, sick his body in. Um, but it's, you know, but the film is, has really got a charming black humor type of wit because he, you know, as he has him locked up, he brings him the newspaper and he brings him sandwiches that they complain about. They smoke cigars, they smoke cigarettes, and they talk about things. And they talk about things like, you know, and he, he doesn't show really any sort of um, anger or hatred. You know, he goes about his business, you know, the psychiatrist, you know, like, well, this is what he has to do. Um, uh, the American, on the other hand, you know, is sort of, you know, accepting that. Uh, of course, he's frustrated and he screams and he says, oh, you're just too chicken. And he tries to do so all these type of psychological uh, things to his advantage, but uh, they don't they don't seem to, to help at all. Um, you know, as I said, the story was called A Man About a Dog because uh, in, in Koppel's uh, original book, obviously the dog was very important. Now, Yitzhak, you know, I've mentioned to you about the problem with animals in, in films. We talked about it in National Velvet and others. Um, there, there were a lot of great trained dogs. Um, and, you know, Asta, of course, from, uh, from the Thin Man series and Asta's children. And they, they, they were sort of like, um, um, you know, uh, performers, clowns. Uh, the dog here also uh, uh, was called Monty, and the credits have said that he was been trained by, I forgot who it was. So he definitely was a trained animal that they used, but the dog is not particularly indicative of some super intelligence. But in the book and in the play, the dog features very prominently because the dog smells what's going on and the dog follows Reardon uh, to, the, to the room that he has. Um, uh, his wife's lover stashed away. Um, and now, and, and, and you can hear uh, his wife, Storm, screaming, where's the dog? Where's the dog? And you know, it, it would seem like the, the obvious thing to do was just kill the dog because the dog would, would, would lead people to where the, the person was hidden. But incredibly, the dog stays. And uh, you know, although Reardon is ready to kill, um, to kill this fellow, uh, and to extract his revenge on his wife, uh, I suppose in some strange, but the dog, you know, he keeps the dog alive. Now, the dog is really not as animated and as fun as the, you know, these American dogs that we talked about, like the dogs and the dog in National Velvet and the Blondie series uh, and Asta. But, you know, you're supposed to believe that the dog is intelligent enough that he can be trained, although he was also tied up. And it's the dog's training that um, 
this American is going to be able to use to uh, to uh, spoil or foil the 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 plot. But it's really you know it's really a combination not only of the dog, but also of the Scotland Yard inspector, and that the film is almost stolen in, in many ways by Naunton Wayne who. Um, uh, uh, achieved uh, quite a bit of notoriety as a British comedian. Uh, he was cast by Hitchcock in um, the uh, the great film, uh, 1935, I think it was, of um, The Lady Vanishes, or 37, or 36. And um, he was teamed with Basil Radford um, as Caldecott and Charters, uh, two fellows who were cricket uh, enthusiasts who basically travel around uh, you know uh, they're traveling around Europe uh, just you know uh, on this train totally oblivious to everything and they were the comic relief they went over so well in the Hitchcock film that they became characters uh, on in other films playing the exacts in, in films not made by Hitchcock and became uh, a popular radio team um, and Naunton Wayne was was very well known in 1949 as a comedian. And when he appears on screen, you sort of expect, you know, a sort of a, a, a little bit of tomfoolery or a person who's not on the ball. Instead, uh, you know, uh, casting him was a, a, a little piece of genius there because he actually is very much. Uh, on the ball in terms of the clues. And um, the, the, although uh, uh, Clive is a genius in terms of everything that he's planned out, he does, unfortunately, he slips up. And the way he slips up is uh, it, it, it comes through the Americanisms that enter into his, into his uh, conversation, which the Scotland Yard inspector played by Naughton uh, sees as an anomaly. And a great scene, which I, which really underscores the the tension between England and America, as as he's going to some maybe it's Admiral Nelson that he's I don't know who, but some some statue of some great Englishman that he's and and, and there's there's three American sailors, um, with with the ugliest close-ups that Dimitri could could manage that are you know lasciviously speaking about their female conquests and how one of the sailor is going to be um, leaving the country and he wants to sell his little black book with the numbers of all the loose women. And they keep on using the, the term pal, 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 which was the term that he had heard uh, in his conversation uh, with the psychiatrist. Um, and that was the key uh, to figure out that indeed that American was was alive and perhaps being held by them. Um, the uh, it, the film is really in, in many ways like a film noir uh, because none of the characters, unlike you know a similar film um, like um, Dilemma for Murder, which I think we've talked about, um, which also was set in England. Um, it has a lot of American, you know, American versus England aspect to it, also based on a, a stage play. Uh, there, the inspector, played by the great John Williams, no, no relation to the, to the, um, to the, uh, to the composer. There, the inspector is clearly, you know, you can see he's on the ball. Here, uh, this inspector, you know, is able to, uh, you know, put these things together, Columba-like. And be able to realize that uh, that indeed, you know, by 
by discovering uh, what's happening, uh, that there is a, um, you know, that they can find them. A little bit of jealousy uh, it occurs when once again, um, uh, the psychiatrist picks up the phone when the inspector calls and he, he believes that she's once again involved with someone when she doesn't realize who she's really been talking to was the police. So although um, Storm is also crucial in, in helping solve the case because she brings Scott Lillard in when she discovers a dog hair uh, on her husband's coat, it really is, you know, uh, sort of, you know, he's sort of undone in a way by his own obsession and uh, and he, he pretty calmly goes to his he, pr- he pretty calmly goes to his faith i mean he 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 again the, the, he he poisons the uh, his captor uh, but um the as as the film says they bring they brought a surgeon with them you know a doctor uh to be able to somehow pump the stomach or get him to the hospital in time and what's interesting to me in the film is that you know there's there's no really happy ending uh storm uh is is revealed in the end to be just you know someone who couldn't really care less it was just a dalliance and she's off with whatever money she's gotten somehow uh on a trip to south america and you know she leaves this she leaves the american in the hospital <laughs> and says maybe they'll see each other someday uh after everything that he had to suffer for her and in the last part of the film, the dog, as since the dog has become so uh, close to um, the, the prisoner, uh, the dog <laughs> the the dog slips his leash and decides to stay with the with the American in the hospital, which is sort of like you know uh, that's that's the closing scene. Uh, it really is a, a very interesting. Again, I, I I could have shaved off about 20 minutes of it. I know you probably would have wanted to shave off about 45 minutes of it because it's, it's sort of like a, um, uh, uh, you know, an hour type of uh, Hitchcock uh, episode, but it, it, I think it's superior in many ways. And, and, and just, you know, we talk about Dimitrik making the film in England. Um, it's interesting that he had to make it there because he originally, he was one of the original Hollywood 10 that was being asked to speak in front of the House committee uh, investigating uh, the influence of communism in Hollywood. And he was called because there was a very strong suspicion that Dimitrik, who was really, you know, up until that a year earlier, he had been lauded as a very important director uh, who just made the you know the the film that dealt with anti-Semitism in the greatest way possible, Crossfire, uh, with Robert Ryan, um, and Sam Levine, where um, you know, and 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 Robert Mitchum, where they're discovering the evil anti-Semitism that still works even among the great GIs in America, you know, this terrible blight. And uh, as as he since he refused to testify, he was under contempt of the senate and he escaped to england um and uh he was there for a number of years and this was a film that he was able to make um in england and i think it's you know it really in a way if you if you look at dimitrik's career it might be you know one of the top films that he made he, he of course he's famous mostly famous you know for a film he made in in the mid-50s when he decided to come back and and testify and i guess name some names and that's of course is the Kane mutiny um which is a film that you know many people feel is you know Bogart's last great 
performance and you know a film that you know for you know based on Herman you know I don't know if Alec Kapu was Jewish but it was a film that was based on uh, on uh, on Herman Wuchs uh, book and and play the game mutiny court martial and uh, you know, Herman Wuchs was very very as I told you in a previous conversation Herman Wuchs was very proud of that film of of that of that book and he felt it was very important for that idea um, uh, to to have currency that you must listen to authority and that's Herman Wuchs felt that was something that was entrenched in the ideas of the Torah but Dimitrik made that movie and I think that was probably you know Dimitrik's uh, the apex of his career, which happened a number of years afterwards. But I know when I told you, Yitzhak, that uh, this was a film I was interested in, I know it got you thinking again about, you know, the the expatriates and the idea of, of having to escape the United States for England. And you mentioned to me one of the most famous uh, directors, uh, writers, and actors who had to sort of, who had to, who was, who sort of um, could not return to America and had to make a film in England, right? Well, yes, that was uh, Charlie Chaplin, of course, after, I, th- I think he made Limelight in England as well in 1952. And once he went there, he really wasn't welcome back into America. And he wound up settling in Switzerland. But he, he was, he was, you know, a British origin. And he went to England to make another film five years later, which was his last starring role, probably uh, you know, after a, a quite a few very controversial movies, this was probably the most controversial of, of his of his whole career. And he, he only made one more film after that, which is generally understood to be his, his, his absolute worst film, was The Countess in Hong Kong, was, was in about 10 years later, I think 1967, with Sophia Loren and, and Marlon Brando. But this movie, 1957, The King in New York, uh, was actually not released in America until, I think, 1972. So it went about 15 years uh, without ever being released in America because it was really a lampoon of uh, American culture in general, but with a particular focus on that issue of, of McCarthyism, which really... By that time, by 1957, had more or less died down um, in America. It was, uh, you know, but it was, and a lot of the film critics at the time said, you know, he's he's kind of, you know, this is old news. He's bringing up something that's not necessary, and he was really, uh, you know, taking a lot of time to make fun of America. He he plays a king from a small European, a fictional. European country that's uh, had the what what is described at the beginning of the film a, a minor uh, inconvenience of modern life of a revolution, and so uh, he managed to get on a plane and come to America, and that was pretty much you know and the, the funny things that that go on and he's trying you know and he's he's out of money, so he he's there in America he's not the little tramp character he, he you know he's he has white hair and he just, you know, he's without his, his uh, iconic makeup. He's uh, just, you know, presenting himself as a very uh, arrogant and proud king who enjoys the high life and also enjoys the attention of the media and everything. 
but when he comes to America, he he goes to to movies, and he sits through some coming attractions and films. And one of them is, I don't know if he was aware of Ed Wood's movie Glen or Glenda, but he 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 the one of the coming attractions was man or woman, and so you have this scene of these of a man and a woman who the man the woman has a man's voice and the man has a woman's voice and they're talking to each other and they said you know how can we how can we survive you know we how can our love survive and they said no we 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 could go to to sweden and then then they'll accept us there and uh so it was the uh, you know with the so i see it was so in other words he so despite the fact that he was in england he, he had his ear to the ground about uh, what was what was happening, and you think that this was uh, a chaplain salvo against the United States for how he'd been treated? Obviously, right? Yes, yes. It's a very bitter, very angry film, you know, and it's it really shows. But it's just you know, when I was when when you had mentioned how how, uh, how Dmitriev was the uh, you know was exiled because of not appearing before the the House uh, Un-American Activities Committee. This is a movie that really came to mind because it was. Uh... Yeah, you know, the truth is, is that you know, it. I, I think there was a um, with Chaplin, especially there. There was a sense that uh, you know that he could never um, match the you know the gems, the brilliance of what he had done in the past. So all these films, you know, he was there was almost like a an assumption that it would be mediocre. Um, I do have to tell you, by the way, that uh, Phil Jones is in this film. By this film, the same Phil Brown that uh, played the victim in Obsession is is actually in this film as well. He plays uh, he plays a uh, I think the role that he plays is the is, is the headmaster. I'm not sure with an English accent or not, um, but uh, Chaplin's son, also uh, Michael Chaplin, who, who's still alive, he he uh, plays. A young child who's very precocious and very angry, full ten-year-old boy filled with angst, um, you know, uh, and and very strong political views for a ten-year-old child. And and I think I think he's supposed to be Jewish, you know. His his yeah, he's, he's supposed to be he's supposed to be Rupert Maccabee, which sounds like he's probably yeah, a Jew. Yeah, the name of the character is Maccabee, and when uh, when Chaplin as the king hears his name, he says, "Oh, that's a fine a fine Scottish name." <laughs> which is a, a nice inside joke about um, yeah. Chap was, was quite familiar with Judaism, although he was not a Jew. Um, he, he didn't mind being identified as one. And I guess, uh, you know, Hitler, of course, obviously kept on, you know, referring to Chaplin the Jew, Chaplin the Jew. Um, you know, look, I agree with you that, um, and was, uh, and, you know, his, his third wife, although it wasn't clear if they were married, was, Paulette Goddard, who was uh, who, whose father was Jewish, mm-hmm. she was from Great Neck, New York. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. Look, you know, we, we you know, I don't know if we want to open up that uh, can of fish about all the the young women and wives that he had. You know, Neil, of course, being the last one. Um, you know, you know, look, you, you talk about Charlie. I know that uh, Charlie meant a lot to you when you were growing up, and of course, he's the most famous, really, of 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 the silent comics. Um, I think that uh, that the uh, uh, you know 
time has not always been so kind to him. I think there's there's been a re-examination of the great silent producer directors, these all-in-one superstars. Um, and of course, the three names, and of course, we always talk about them as Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, and Charlie Chaplin. And I think despite Chaplin's prominence, worldwide prominence, you know, even greater than, you know, perhaps any other uh, film person, um, I, I think, you know, a lot of the, the, the critics, and I think you agree, uh, believe that Keaton was Chaplin's superior in many, many ways in terms of his inventiveness, in terms of what he was able to um, achieve through film medium, even the ideas that he had, which Keaton, which, which Keaton you know, sort of called his gags. Um, and he was also a much easier person to work with. And then Chaplin was. Chaplin led, you know, although he came from very, very humble beginnings like Keaton, um, he clearly, um, he quickly um, um, became adapted uh, a very um, uh, stuffy, aristocratic, um, negative type of persona, um, dismissive and manipulating, which, which I think was the opposite of Keaton. Yeah, I think this film, this film really, uh, out of all of Chaplin's works, uh, really captures that that arrogance and that that feeling of superiority that you know uh, turning his nose down into American society and it was uh, it, it, it's certainly a curious piece you know I mean it's, it 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 makes me think of even though I'm I'm not familiar with the with the actual play but you know we all know that lincoln was assassinated while watching our american cousin which was a very similar type of thing you know making fun of you know how how the americans you know were so buffoonish and so forth and it's along that line that uh you know that i think this film in a certain way whereas i don't think the american cousin was as angry as this film this is a very very angry film uh, presented as a comedy, you know, the I think part of the arrogance of, of Chaplin comes out where he he uh, you know in uh, in the opening title of the film it says a comedy, you know, produced, directed, and starring Charlie Chaplin, you know that that he has you know it's, it, there's certain condescending tone that he has to explain to us that this film is a comedy. And I know I know I know it takes I know it takes a number of swipes at television, which we knew you know, Hollywood was doing, we talked about that a, a number of weeks ago, but as you yeah. say, it really, you know, he actually does have uh, a hearing, a, a Senate hearing, which of course is what Chaplin refused to be part of, right? He, um, right, and they, and, 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 and I, do I, do you believe those, I know it was already too, too late because McCarthy had already had his fall from grace at that point, but do you think that the satire, um, you know, is is just too acrid uh, to really land. It doesn't have any of the you know, the sweetness of Chaplin's earlier work. Like you know, you look at Modern Times, which is a, obviously a, very much a satire on what we consider the modern age and the advantages of of you know of, of the assembly line and 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 then the benefits of what this era is giving us. Um, you know, with these images, which I think are going to live in, you know, film history forever, like, you know, Chaplin continuing to, uh, to, to adjust the nuts and bolts as he becomes part of a machine itself. Is there anything in the King of New York that, that is even close to that? 
Well, I'll, you know, not not close to that, but uh, you know, there's one scene where he he's going out to eat and he's asking for caviar, and he's trying to kind of pantomime to explain what caviar is, you know, and it's again, it's it's a it's a pompous type of a thing. Uh, that that, but it's you know it's it's cute to see Chaplin pantomiming again, you know that type of a thing. You know he's mm-hmm. he's trying to go back to his roots. There is there is a little bit of the old Chaplin there, but it's so it's it, it's so clouded by his anger, you know. Which again, in his other films before that, he's making a statement. You know he's obviously uh, in, the, in the you mentioned modern times. He's making a statement about modernity that's not a very positive one you know he's making almost i, I don't know if he you would call him a, a luddite but he's not he's not happy with with modernity in oh. modern times but it's not a it's not a bitter mean film it's a beautiful film uh, and then the great dictator also obviously he has he has someone great to you know perfect person that great a horrible evil that he's fighting against and so that's totally appropriate that he's that it's a, it, you know he's doing the right thing fighting fighting against the evil of Hitler even before America entered the war, and then uh, so that's an appropriate you know place to to place his anger, and then when he made the, his next film after that was Monsieur Verdot, where he's talking about you know the the evils of war and how you know. A serial killer is seen as a monster, but a but a, a soldier is seen as some kind of a hero. That's that's his statement at the end of the film that you know that he has to get in in some kind of a political statement there. And then we have uh, this film where it's just it's really just bitterness. It's really it's uh, and, and it's it's quite sad to see. Uh, I mean, I mean I, we understand where it's coming from, but on the other hand, it's. It, it's really, uh, it's it's a sad. Well, thing you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I want to pick up on, on on a statement that you said, Yitzchak, which is that the old chaplain, and I think one of the the issues that that silent stars like him, Lloyd, and Keith Mad was so much of who they were was their athleticism, was their ability to take a fall, was you know, because famously, neither of the, all three of them, none of them used stunt doubles. And they were, and that's what really makes these guys, you know, the the the, the kings of of comedy. They are really incredible. And when a person gets older, and you know, they can't all be Jack O'Lane. You can't always be as fit and trim and do the type of stuff. You know, I talked about Gene Kelly a couple of weeks ago. Uh, also knowing when to, you know, put away the ballet, you know, tap shoes. Um, so it, it, you you take uh, Chaplin's physicality away. Um, yeah, it, it's hard for him to just be to do drawing room uh, satire. I, I think you know you, you're almost you know, it, that, that's quite difficult. Um, aging is, is, is you know, again it's one thing Dimitrik or or Hitchcock or any of the directors who whose whose careers lasted for a long time. You know, there's ways you can still be productive and still push yourself mentally. But when you have to be in front of the camera and doing that stuff, I think that um, by definition. Uh, things are going to be weaker, and they're not—they're not, they're not going to be anywhere close to what you could have done. You know, you, you mentioned the Great Dictator, and this was a film that I saw when I was very young. 
when I was about 10, 11 years old, when, when, it, when it came to one of the art theaters uh, in my city, in Memphis, when I was growing up. And uh, I, I was so taken by it. Um, but even when I saw it, I was, it the, the, the breaking of the fourth wall that the chaplain does, you know, as the film ends, and uh, the Jewish barber, who is a, who is a spitting image of uh, Anadoid Henkel, the you know, you know, Adolf Hitler, um, who is, uh, and therefore the, the, the switching of, of I, think, I, I think the Hitler character ends up being sent off to, I guess, some concentration camp because they think he's the Jew. And he, you know, they think he's the king, they think he's the, 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 the chancellor. And as he makes his way up uh, to the stage, some sort of like Munich uh, type of stage. Uh, and of course, you know, Chaplin had his own studio and Chaplin put a lot of money in it you know, to make it look, you know, somewhat magnificent. Um, and he gets up there, Chaplin, instead of, you know, this is really the end of the film, Chaplin turns to the camera and speaks really for the first time on film. Uh, you know, Chaplin resisted, as you know, uh, the uh, what every other filmmaker had done, which is we have to go with the talkies. Even Keaton uh, realized that the, the gig, gig was up. He couldn't make any silence after 1930. I don't know what the last film he made was that was silent. But Chaplin, uh, you know, makes um, you know, um, uh, in not only you know before modern times, the film that he made before that, which of course is called City Lights. City Lights and Modern Times. These were films that were made in the talkie era. They were made totally in the talkie era, and Chaplin only had very limited. In Modern Times, you heard, I think, uh, the sound of the of the boss coming over the televisions, the telescreen, and telling everybody to get back to work. But everything else was silent, and Chaplin, of course, remained silent. He was the little tramp, and that was a uh, a universal figure. Um, and Chaplin sort of felt he had a responsibility to keep that tramp silent. Uh, and although, as you pointed out to me in a previous conversation, the barber is not the tramp, but he's pretty much the tramp, right? He walks like the tramp. He, he gets into trouble like the tramp. Uh, he dances like the tramp. Um, so to me, you know, although it's, as you said in the, in the, in the credit scene and the credit um, images, uh, it, it doesn't say the tramp as it does in like uh, like in the gold rush and the kid, but he clearly is. And this is really, you know, Chaplin saying the tramp is the Jew, at least the, he's the Jew for 1940, because the Jew in 1940 was hunted and was the enemy of the world. And that's who the tramp represents. But yet, when he makes that speech, and as I told you, uh, Roosevelt wanted him to repeat that speech at his... Um, inauguration. You know, Chaplin himself became incredibly verbose afterwards and went on a speaking tour uh, and, and really never was the same. I think Chaplin's decision to speak in that film was really the end of his career. And I, I, I know Limelight, uh, many people believe it a very beautiful film. And of course, Keaton, was, that was the only time Keaton and Chaplin were together in a film, I believe. Um, but um, yeah, you know, I, 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 really, I really, you know, I, I think of the in the when in the press conference for Monsieur Verdot when you know uh, J. Edgar Hoover and others had already you know had begun the witch hunt against Chaplin uh, that he was a communist. Um, 
uh, one of the reporters got up there and said, look, I don't want to talk about you being a communist. But since you started talking, you've robbed us of, of, of laughter. <laughs> You're not funny anymore. And that, that's on record, you know, it, 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 at, the, at the, one of the press conferences from Monsieur Verdot. And I think that, unfortunately, that was the case. Um, it's, 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 it's incredible that it was, you know, it was the great dictator that sort of uh, spawned that. You know, he had been making films. I mean, it's for, for about, um, I think, 1913, I think was his first film. Right, so, like races in Venice Beach. Yeah. Right, so I think he'd been making films for 27 years, and he'd become a multi, multi-millionaire. I mean, today's terms, you know, maybe even a billionaire, like a beyond. But you know, it, you know, you know, the decline was very steep after that. You know, I I heard a quote from I don't know if this is in his biography. You told me you read his biography, but I know that Chaplin said that had he known how horrendous Hitler's crimes were, he would not have made the film. In other words, he, you know, he, 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 to him, Hitler was a threat. Hitler was ugly. It was terrible. Uh, it brought out the worst in humanity. But had he known how monstrous the Holocaust was, he, doesn't, he, he, he would probably not have made the film. He, I think he said that. Um, when, when he was asked. And of course, Chaplin said many things after the fact. You know, the people are always in their biographies and in their interviews, always willing to twist things the way they want. But I, I think even watching The Great Dictator is hard for many people because, you know, it's different than, you know, Mel Brooks's, the producers. Um, I, I think it's sort of like, you know, Hitler isn't just a ridiculous person you make fun of. Hitler has become for many people you know the devil incarnate so you know so to sort of like make fun of him as a a short egotistical silly person who's um you know it's sort of like you know and i think that, that that's i think that's where our culture is and that's part of the reason why even the great dictator despite its beauty um and and many 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 really great scenes i don't think it is appreciated today either uh, even as an anti-war film. Interesting thing about that, though, is, you know, Kazal made fun of Nebuchadnezzar, who was also presented as as being the the, the real Lucifer, you know. So it's, uh, there is, to say, you know, there there is a tradition that we have along those lines, you know, meaning that the types of things that the, the Gemara and, and Shabbos talks about Nebuchadnezzar, it, it, Yes, well, never, well, yeah, well, I understand, but you know, again, but, but but Nebuchadnezzar was not a man again. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, was he might have instigated you know horrible uh, oppression in terms of uh, uh, you know the the forced evacuations of people from various countries, but 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 but, but exterminating people, um, right. that seems to be something that you know, I mean, it, when Chaplin found out about it, and, and again, that's why I think it's. It's difficult to, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. I've always had a hard time watching that movie. It's really, it's it, 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 right. It's one thing, you know, it would be a some like a Colonel Clink like from Hogan's Heroes or something like that. You know, that's one thing. You know, you want to make fun of that, but but Hitler himself has become, and I think you know, has become so um, uh, identified with evil incarnate. You know, it's sort of like 
it's almost like Chaplin bit off more than he could chew without even realizing it, okay? Because everybody had been always talking about they, they were born within four days of each other. You know that, right? They were born on the same, within, right? And everybody always said, oh, he's got a mustache. He has a mustache. Like, he looks well, like Chaplin. Yeah, Chaplin always said that, that Hitler stole the idea of the mustache to, that he wanted to. Since Chaplin was so beloved, he, that, that Hitler figured, oh, if he, if he has... Chaplin's mustache, people will love him. You know, that, right, that's and, and, and uh, although Hitler was, you know, Mark Chamo was, was like Chaplin, an actor, uh, very boisterous, very, you know, he could somehow move a crowd. He was, you know, his, his body language was crucial to, he was not like William F. Buckley, you know, sitting in his chair and firing line, um, you know. You know, Hitler, uh, so in many ways, there was a lot of uh, similarities. And, and Chaplin almost felt he had to make the great dictator because of that. I think he even says that in his, in his biography because of, you know, us, and he felt he was giving the public what they wanted. Now, unfortunately, you know, what ends up happening is, is, is things start spinning out of control. It's, you know, it's funny because, you know, the, the dirt that they dug up on Chaplin, that, that Hoover had dug up on him, had to do with all his philandering and, uh, and, and and sort of like you know child endangerment and all his his wives that, that were underage and things like that and uh, along with the you know the his communism um, and uh, his allegiance to ideas which were considered uh, you know anti-American uh, but I think you know you know the when Hollywood decided I still remember seeing this I think I mentioned this to you the other day uh, I still remember the 1970 Oscars where where you know, uh, Chaplin was given his Oscar finally in an honorary Oscar tribute. He came back and somebody stuck his, someone, you know, I forgot who it was, someone stuck a, a cane in his hand and, and, the, and the tramp hat as if he should put it on. And Chaplin, of course, you know, looking old and tired and clearly not who he was. Um, yeah, it was very, very sad. I remember seeing that, and even I was only ten years old when I saw it, and you know, I said, "Wow, that's Charlie Chaplin." <laughs> you know, um, so you know, I think it is. Uh, you know, we talk about these. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. thing also about the 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 period in which this movie, The King of New York, was was made. There was a renaissance of interest in silent film at that time, particularly silent comedy. And most, of, and there were a lot of uh, anthology films that were released at that time, cashing in on that interest on these movies that were you know, already 30, 30, 40 years old at the time. And in general, uh, when they would make these anthology films and release them uh, as ubiquitous as Chaplin was in his heyday, he was totally absent from these films because he had been blacklisted. And so you you know, all of these films, they focused on Keaton and and Harold Lloyd and some of the others, like, you know, Langdon and uh, Laurel and Hardy's early works and the, the Our Gangs, of, you know, the Keystone Cops, but uh, which Chaplin was, was involved right, he was in. A, right, he was originally part of the, that's, that's yeah. you know, how Roach brought yeah. him in as, as one of the um, replacement in one of the Keystone Cops films, which is really, I think, one of his first one of his first, uh, where he really you know, made a really great mark about yeah, but, himself. But they, they, let, they left Chaplin out of these films solely, and I think I think even as controversial in, in his own time as, as Fatty Arbuckle was, 
I think already by the 50s, Fatty Arbuckle, who had already passed away by that time, he, I think, already was vindicated that, that they could show Fatty Arbuckle, but they could not show Chaplin. Well, again, I think part of it had to do with really the, not so much of the sexual peccadilloes. I think it had to do more with the, um, the connection to communism. Yes, and that's, that's what it was. I mean, we were still living in the Cold War. And it's, it's, I don't know if Chaplin was really a, a real communist, but he was, you know, I don't think he was a, a Stalinist or a Leninist, anything like that. But yeah, look, look, uh, it, there was a lot of jealousy, and Chaplin made a lot of enemies. You know, it, I think really the irony when we uh, sort of like you know put a period onto this whole conversation about about you know England and America. You know, Chaplin was raised in you know sort of like in the slums of London. Um, the film that he made, which I think is one of the, you know, it still brings tears to my eyes when I see it, which is The Kid. He made, you know, I think he did it twice, I think. Um, but I think, you know, the, the film The Kid with Jackie Coogan, um, the scene where they're, they're coming from the child welfare services to take him away, to take the little boy away. Uncle Fester. <laughs> they're coming to take Uncle Fester away. They're going to take little, the, the little child away, the little ragamuffin. And that, that, that attic that um, is really people have, have shown this was the attic that Chaplin lived with with his mother who was actually probably was going through a, a whole bout of mental illness um, that was the attic that, that Chaplin lived in you know Chaplin came from extremely humble uh, beginnings as I said before um, very difficult ones and when he came to America um, as part of this sort of like vaudeville show and eventually got his showing in Hollywood uh, with Hal Roach, you know, he, it was a tremendous meteoric rise. Uh, and he was this English fellow who, who made it great in America. And it was in America itself that he was like a symbol of, of how someone could come with nothing from England, from the old world. Yeah, I and think he, even his, his, his ancestry, he was not Jewish ancestry, was uh, Roma, was, was a gypsy ancestry. Yes, yes. And um, so really here was a, it was a person with really with with without any real roots and becoming something great in America, like a, a tremendous American success story. And when, when, when he came back to England, it was like a hero's welcome. He had he had made it. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it's fascinating how the what happens after World War Two. Uh, as England, you know, sort of allows Chaplin back, and you know, he gets his knighthood eventually, uh, and of course his exile in Europe. It's interesting how, how in, in the space of what, you know, in forty years, the the the, di- the dynamic has has was it was totally changed. Obviously, the world changed, uh, you know, with with two world wars. You know, from you know Chaplin from the time he he appears in Hollywood to the time he makes the King of New York. But the, the, the whole dynamic in, in the world has changed. Um, and, and, and that way, you know, it's, it's like, like you say, it's, it's a film that's probably worth seeing, but it's sad in, in, in what it says about how we treat our, <laughs> how we do elect politics really color so much our, our life and what it does to both parties. <laughs> Now, not only the, you know, J. Edgar Hoover who went after Chaplin, but also, you know, what it did to Chaplin itself, how it, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he, uh, he, you know, it, it, it sort of, I don't know what he would have been able to produce had he stayed in the United States, but clearly, uh, you know, what we do have from him is, 
is, a, is is paltry compared to perhaps what he could have been, perhaps what he could have done. And um, yeah, I think that's part of the uh, the com- the sad but, comment. But uh, you know, I I don't think though Chaplin would have lowered himself the way that that Keaton and 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 to a certain extent Lloyd did. You know, I mean Keaton, you know, was, was appearing, you know, the beach blanket bingo movies with you know Annette Funicello, you know, and and the, you know uh, he didn't have any problems with that, but I think someone like Chaplin just said that would have been beneath him. You know, yeah, yeah, Cha- like I said, you know, Chaplin, and that was really in a way what what is, you know, unfortunately that was somebody. Look, they both, both the, the tragedy is really laced with both of them. You know, Keaton is a tragedy. So is Chaplin. I, I cry more for Keaton actually because yeah, I, yeah. I, I I feel I feel much more sympathy for Keaton. You know, you know, I, I, you know Cha- Chaplin's sort of like in a way stewed in the bed that he made, but it still is, you know, it, it is unfortunate. And um, I'm happy that you made the connection here, you know, with, you know, uh, between, you know, Dimitri's obsession and, and the whole Chaplin, um, you know, Chaplin's exile and, and Odyssey. And, uh, you know, it's probably worthwhile again, checking out, you know, quite a bit. It's, it's of... available also on the Criterion is where, you, if, if you will, you know, it's streaming. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere else. Actually, but the King of New York is streaming on Criterion. A King in New York. We'll catch you a couple of weeks from now. I guess we're going to, uh, uh, as we say, <laughs> the projectionist has to clean for comments. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to get the, the projectionist <laughs> needs to get the house clean. So, as my friends, um, watch your step on the way out. Be well, everybody. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.